The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. We arrive in Texas on day two of our tour of the Southwest Division. Make our way through the NBA here on Fantasy NBA Today. I'm your host, Dan Bespris, and this is a hoop ball presentation. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. It's Wednesday, July the 14th. I once again lost track of how far we are into this thing. I believe this is off-season show number 43, right? Isn't this week nine? Also, as I inserted the word right in the middle of my sentence, I'm reminded once again how much I hate it when broadcasters do that, when they're not actually asking someone a question. Please. Also, I'm going to say this to all of you guys, and now you're going to hear it every time it happens. It happens all the time and reputable reasonable professional broadcasters have taken to this and I think maybe it's because everyone did everything on zoom or skype for a calendar year so you never knew if someone was actually listening or about to cut in in the middle of your statement so people started filling the I'm gonna take a breath dead air moment by asking right Allow me to do an example. This is the pet peeve portion of the podcast proceedings. Before we dive into Kristaps Porzingis, Luka Doncic, and the Mavericks, here on this Fantasy NBA Today episode, I promise you we will get to it in a second. But here's an example. Let's say I was talking about the finals, which are coming up tonight. We'll also be breaking those down on today's podcast. And I said something like, oh, I don't know. So as we head into Wednesday's Game 4... The Suns lead the Bucks two games to one. Milwaukee favored by four and a half points at home with a total of 221. Honestly, I, don't, I can't even make myself do it. I, it's, so, it's so uncomfortable to say something like, so Drew Holiday, he shot 57% in the game before, right? Yes, of course he did. It's factual. You don't need to ask that question. It's a statement of fact. Stop it. All of you. I'm looking at every one of you with a show in any capacity, video, audio, uh, at a table in a public park. I don't care where you're doing your show. Please stop ending factual statements or things that you want to be factual statements by asking, right? You sound like a... Well, whatever. We're not going to go that way. We're not going to go that way. I'm not going to call you out. Well, the beauty part of this pet peeve is that every single person's doing it right now, so I'm not calling out anyone, actually. In particular, it's the entire globe. We've all forgotten how to communicate with one another. Remember! Remember! All together now, remember. The finals. It is indeed game four. The Bucks do indeed trail two games to one, and the numbers that I gave you before are indeed accurate, and they are basically... A carbon copy of what we got in game three. Bucks were favored by four, four and a half in that one. They are favored by four and a half in this one. Total was 220. It actually inched up ever so slightly to 221, which is interesting because the last one ended right on the number, which actually it opened at about 222 and then came down, closed at 220, and the game finished at 220. And that's what we kept saying. The total was right. I didn't know how many games it was going to take for the teams to actually play to the pace 
that they were playing at, if that makes any sense. I didn't know how many games it was going to take the final score to match up with the number of possessions that we were calculating for the ball game, but it happened in game three. There's really no reason for oddsmakers to make much of an adjustment on the total because they've got it right. They've got it right. That's a different use of the word, by the way. So what do we expect going into game four? Is there anything that's going to change considerably in the attack method of the two teams? No, I don't believe so. We're getting... It's not the fastball anymore. Teams throw their fastball early in a playoff series, and then it's adjustment, adjustment, adjustment. Bucks have figured out a way to get Giannis his. Giannis, wonderful job he's done here, adjusting his own personal game to get still pretty darn easy buckets at a still pretty darn easy clip. And then he just needs a little bit of help, which he got now back on his home court. And then for Phoenix, they didn't get the contributions from the other guys. Cam Johnson was actually okay in Game 3, but uh, campaign was not very good. Frank Kaminsky, who actually is having to play more here with Dario Saric, tearing his ACL. Torrey Craig played, so there was, from, there was fear that he might miss some additional time. And then Devin Booker wasn't very good, but Jay Crowder was in kind of a weird twist. Crowder was the hot one. You can flip that on its head. Booker's probably going to be better in Game 4, but Crowder's probably going to be worse. The Bucks do tend to get better as a series goes on. So as much as I've leveled Coach Bud with criticism, the way that they play lends itself to longer series. The Milwaukee Bucks are a play-to-a-statistical play regression team on defense. They basically run drop coverage whenever a big man can't stick with a small dude, and they dare teams to beat them from three-point land. And in a short series, that might fail. It looked like it was going to a couple of times already, even in this one. But you give it enough time, teams miss some three-pointers, it levels out, and the Bucks tend to be pretty damn competitive, especially now that they've made those adjustments on the offensive side, which forces Phoenix into slower tempo, slightly tougher looks. Still, the tempo is what it is right now. They're playing to about a 220 possessions or so. In the last game, the Bucks had a few more because they out-rebounded the Suns 47-36. to And Suns committed five additional turnovers. Phoenix was at like about 104-105 possessions. Bucks were at like 112. It still came out to just below 220 total possession number. And then crept up and over. It looked like it was going to go much farther over. Uh, Bucks... Reserves to the reserves played very poorly in garbage time, or this one would have actually gone over the total. Perhaps that's why the total was adjusted up by one point, because had this game been a bit closer and the good players played the final two to three minutes of the ballgame, you probably would have seen an extra, I don't know, three or four points. And so they adjusted it up by one point. On the side, I want nothing to do with it, because every game in this series profiles as a close one, and every time some weird little anomaly takes place that pushes some separation between the two clubs. Whether it was the turnover battle lost in Game 3, Phoenix getting clobbered on the glass in Game 3. By the way, I will say this, Game 3 had fewer anomalies than Game 1 and 2, where they favored the Phoenix Suns. We may finally have a game here in Game 4 where the teams play about how you expect 
It's a tight ball game, and in those cases, you take the underdog. So ever so slight lean to the Phoenix Suns on the side. Not to say that they win the ball game outright. I just think this one will be a little bit closer. If it is, you probably have to... I mean, then you might as well just take the money line and assume Chris Paul does something special down the stretch because I think I'd rather have Chris Paul in the half court at the end of a ball game than Giannis. I, all of this to say, this long-winded finals breakdown to say, I don't really have a play on the game tonight. I think the lines are finally starting to work their way into the proper number as the thing goes along. I would lean ever so slightly to the under if, and this isn't the case, unfortunately, if this series was playing every other day. I think I mentioned this on Monday's podcast. If I felt like the teams were wearing down, I would take the under. But, I mean, they're playing like two games a week right now, which is bananas, and they're all so super well-rested. They had two days off between games in the same city, and they'll have two more days off before they travel back to Phoenix. Good gravy, I say. They're well-rested, so the under probably goes out the window. The pace of the game suggests that it'll play pretty damn close to that total. If there was, if the pace was around this number and there was fatigue, I'd say go under, but there isn't, so... You're probably better off just betting that the total stays within five points of the posted line. And then baby lean to the Suns on the side, but not really anything other than, like, I need to have a tenth of a unit of action on a ball game because it's a finals game, and I won't get to bet on basketball again until Saturday, and then who knows if we even get another game after that. The ultimate in fun action play is basically where we're at with that one. Let's pivot over to the Dallas Mavericks, which, honestly, as much as I love the finals, because the angles are kind of clunky right now, I'm more thoroughly enjoying our team-by-team breakdown. And Dallas is an interesting one, because a lot is coming off the books. Tim Hardaway Jr.'s $19 million is off the books. J.J. Reddick's $13 million is off the books. Josh Richardson has an $11.5 million player option, which may or may not come off the books. My guess would be he probably exercises it, but he's only 27, so it's possible he just wants to try to make about that same amount of money and extend it over two or three years instead of one. I don't know what his agent's going to tell him to do. Nicolo Melli, his four mil are off the books, is off the books. Boban's $3.5 million coming off the books. And uh, Luca is still on his rookie deal, so he's only making $10 million this coming year. The only big money the Mavs have tied up is Christoph Porzingis, who deuced all over his giant contract in the playoffs this year. He's set to make $32 million, uh, 34 and then 36 over each of the next three seasons. So what that tells us is that whatever we thought we knew about the Mavericks from this last year, it's going to change going into the next one there's going to be an adjustment because guys that were there won't be there. Guys that played fairly significant minutes won't be there. They mentioned it. Hardaway Jr., gone. He was playing huge minutes for this team, particularly down the stretch. He was thrust into a much larger role. Uh, Timmy averaged 29 minutes a game this season and more down the stretch than earlier in the year. He picked up his pace. They really liked the way he played, I think, off of Porzingis as sort of your gunner to help space the floor, and he's off. Maxi Kleba averaged about 27 minutes a game. Jalen Brunson was about 25. Dwight Powell was only at 17. 
Although there is a case to be made that he might play more if he gets his legs back underneath him. But here's the thing about the Mavericks. Before we go into sort of every different player and what it all means, they only had two guys on a per-game basis inside the top 100. Only two. And only three inside the top 100 by totals, thanks in heavy part to the fact that Tim Hardaway Jr. played 70 out of their 72 regular season games this year, so he was able to give himself a massive per-game-to-totals bump. Also of note, Jalen Brunson played a lot better as the season went along. If you look at the entire season, Brunson was top 180. If you look at just the second half of the season, he creeps up into that 150 range, but still, you're talking about a guy that really needed... Honestly, he just really needed a bunch of guys to be out in front of him to catch that wave because he was all built on high field goal percent and usage, and that just wasn't going to be there when the whole team was there around him. So Tim Hardaway Jr., I don't know, maybe they try to bring him back. Fine. If they do, great. I mean, again, he was top 150 on a per-game basis. Kleba, 164 on a per-game basis. Jay Rich, 140. He had about a six-week stretch right after, around the All-Star break, a little after the All-Star break, where he looked like he was finding his form and then it dissipated again. And then Dorian Finney-Smith, who was actually the closest to being fantasy-relevant for this team, was number 114 in nine-category leagues. And for the Mavericks, a lot of... And, and again, there really were only two guys that had fantasy value on the club, but a lot of the value in everybody not named Luka, was tied up in the fact that they were all positive turnover guys. Mavs only had one dude on the team who ever handled the basketball, and it was Luka Doncic. Let's work our way down the board, one little name at a time. We'll start at the top, which is kind of amazing. Kristaps Porzingis, number 23, on a per-game basis in 43 ball games on the year. Which, again, if you had him in Roto Leagues, you could probably call this a win. Because he didn't hit his ADP. He was number 87 by totals because he missed a solid 30 games this year. But you got a guy you probably drafted around 65 or 70 was playing at a second-round clip when he was actually in the ballgame. And you got to, what did we say before? You got to fill in the other 29 missed games. You got 29 Dante DiVincenzos. Or really, in this case, you had 29 Josh Richardsons filling in the peripheral numbers so that that roster slot in your games cap, that cap slot, actually was well beyond the 87 that he put up by totals. If you incl- if you do 43 games of Kristaps at a top 23 clip and 29 games of someone like Josh Richardson at around that 140 clip, call that the fill-in player on a 12-team waiver wire, who, by the way, you could probably do better than that if you're rotating someone on and off your board, but just for math purposes, it's a pretty easy number to get to. I mean, just think of it from this perspective. Tim Hardaway Jr. was top 150. He played in 70 out of 72 games. So if you ran 72 Tim Hardaway Juniors out there, he was number 92 by totals just because that's what you get uh, when you're playing that many ball games. So take Porzingis, take his 43 top 25 performances, combine that with basically 30 more Tim Hardaway Jr. level performances, and 
you're gifted something in the, I don't know, 40, 50 range. It's pretty good. Such is the magic of Roto. In head-to-head, Kristaps Porzingis is untouchable. I do think, and this is going to be a point of discussion for us going into next season's drafts, and it's, it's a split on the head-to-head Roto side as well, Chris Dobbs will probably once again be a useful Roto draft pick. I don't have a clue where he gets picked up next year. Are people going to see that he was a second rounder on a per game basis and draft him in the second round? I doubt it. But let's say he doesn't start the year hurt. Remember, he missed about a month. Let's make sure that I actually get the information right on this one before we go diving into it. Chris Dobbs Porzingis missed uh, first... When did he log his first game of this season? I think it was about a month, if memory serves. Uh, a little less than that. He played his first game about three weeks into the season, three and a half weeks into the season. His minutes ramped up over about a week after that. So he was going uh, in the 30s in minutes about one month into the season. So he missed the Mavericks' first, I don't know, 12, 13 games. Something in that neck of the woods. The other... 15 to 20 games he missed this year came throughout the season. It's actually a really important thing to note. Uh, It wasn't just the beginning of the year. It was every back-to-back. So that was another, like, eight or nine blended in there with the first 10 to 15 that he missed sitting out the beginning of the year. And you're already up and over 20. And from there, a nagging injury here, a COVID protocol there, and you're, you're pushing 30 which is why you can never really draft an injured player to start the year. If Kristaps is healthy coming into this season, you know he's going to have a nagging injury, a knee thing probably. You know he's going to sit out back-to-back. So you can basically bank on him missing 15 to 20 ball games In head-to-head, that is not touchable because you don't know when they're going to come and it could decimate your team at the worst possible moment. In Roto, I'm all about that. If he's playing 62 out of 82 games next year, say he misses 20 at a top 25 clip, that makes him worth a grab in the fourth round. That's a fourth round type of value. And, and we, can, we can sort of draw parallels to this year. Look at someone in that same range as Porzingis who missed 20 ball games. Paul George is actually a great example of this. He sat out 18 games this year, and he was number 25 on a per-game basis. By totals, that dropped him to 45. And that's basically what you're looking at with Porzingis. So that's why I'm okay with taking him in the fourth round. That hits his marker, and then you fill in the other 18 to 20 missed ball games with some hot player on the waiver wire. Just fill up your games cap. Make sure you don't do this on too many guys. But because he's not hurt going into the season, I think there's actually a pretty damn good argument to be made to draft Kristaps Porzingis in game cap roto formats. In head-to-head, no way. Do not draft the load manage guys. You need non-zeros being put up in your head-to-head stuff. Non-zero numbers. Next name on the list is Luka Doncic which I think probably surprises people to see that he isn't the number one fantasy player on the Mavericks, at least on a per-game basis. Luka was number 37 this year. 
Played in 66 of their 72 games, which is pretty damn good considering how hard this year this season was to get through. Averaged 28, 8, and 9 with three threes, a steal, half a block, 48% from the field, and a uh, relatively poor, once again, 73%, seven free throw attempts per game and over four turnovers per contest. You can certainly forgive Luka the four turnovers per game because he's very clearly doing everything for the Mavericks club. There's just, there's no one else that handles the basketball almost ever. He takes a billion shots. That's not going anywhere. And a lot of his stuff stayed relatively consistent season over season. In fact, last year before the season was cut short, he was at 46.3% from the field. He actually moved up this year to 47.9. Number of three-pointers came down this season ever so slightly from nine to a little over eight. Free throw shooting decreased, but I do believe that's kind of within the realm of kind of margin of error. He'll probably be between 71 and 76. Rebounding came down, and I'm inclined to believe that maybe some of that is just because he played likely through a lot of stuff. Because his minutes went up by about 30 seconds per game, 40 seconds per game. And you would think that rebounds would kind of come with that. But I, I think that the desire to go bang around in there and get the rebounds is probably not as high when you're out there thinking, I got to carry this thing. Someone else, please just go get it and give me the basketball like once a game. And that's the difference between nine and change rebounds versus eight rebounds. Assists stayed the same. Turnovers stayed the same. Steals stayed the same. Blocks actually came up this year. I don't know that we can read much into that. I think last year was more of a down season for blocks for him and he'll most likely stay uh, around where he was here's the thing with Luca as incredible as he is and he is incredible and he's gonna score a ton and he's gonna rebound and he's gonna pass and he's gonna hit you three threes a game he has these gaping deficiencies that just smack you right in the face he doesn't do much on defense his free throw percent is a killer because he's at the line all the time and if you're in a non-category format, his turnovers are a massive death blow to that category that you basically can't draft someone else who gives the ball away or you're going to lose that category. Uh, if you're in Roto, at least, you're going to be in the bottom of the pack. And a lot of people are like, ah, you can throw away turnovers in Roto. Yeah, I mean, I guess if half your league gives up at the end of the year, find a way to make that not happen. Turnovers should matter. And they do in real life. And look, Luca, you can begrudge him the high turnover number because he does so many other things. The one thing you really cannot stomach is the fact that he's a massive negative impact free throw shooter. Who doesn't, and this is a weird thing to say, aside from scoring and assists, he doesn't actually help in that many categories. He is a little bit above league average in threes and reboundings. He's well above league average in scoring and assists. And then he's sub-league average in the other five statistical categories. For a guy who, even in nine-category formats, was drafted in the top five. He was relatively durable this year, so by totals he actually moved up to number 26, but that still didn't put him inside the top two rounds. He'll go in the top ten again. In every format, and in points leagues and eight-category leagues, you can make a damn strong case for him going in that top five range. But in nine-category leagues, you decidedly cannot. He has Giannis-type issues, 
with his game. He hits threes, Giannis doesn't, but Giannis has the field goal percent and blocks, Luka doesn't. They both have issues. I cannot advocate drafting guys with big issues unless you're going into a punt build, and you guys know how I feel about that in Roto. Head-to-head, you could get away with it, but why? If you have like a top three or four pick, why punt? You can get guys in the top three or four that are going to make you good in everything. You don't have to punt. Punting is for people that are in the middle of the late first round because at that point, the massive difference makers in the top three are gone. So you wipe a category off the board and suddenly you can turn other guys into massive difference makers. It's a handicap. It's like if you're in last place in Mario Kart and suddenly you get the good stuff. That's that's what punting can do if you're later in the first round. If you have the first pick next year, you take Nikola Jokic, you're good in everything. And he only had three turnovers a game. But I don't all I think I need to hear it about how four turnovers a game is okay. James Harden was the guy that could get away with it because he was giving you 30 and 11 with one and a half steals and a block and 80, 88% massive volume free throw shooting. That's how you get away with being terrible at turnovers. You got to be James Harden. You know who else couldn't get away with it? Trey Young. We'll talk about him when we get there. So Luca, again, this is a very long explanation to say he'll be overdrafted next year. No question. No question. Uh, we've heard the Mavericks linked to Nerland's Noel already. And free agency will firm things up a little bit in the front court because I don't think they want to play Porzingis at center exclusively, maybe on the offensive side or maybe on the defense, whatever it is, however they want to deploy things there with Rick Carlisle gone now. Uh, they were playing centers alongside him, whether it was Kleba to space things out or Dwight Powell to be a, a role man in the pick and roll. So there may be some other centers involved in the mix. If they don't sign a center... They still have Dwight Powell and Maxi Kleba jamming things up for one another. And Willie Cauley-Stein is still floating around out that way. So I'm not too concerned about the center position. The only way I might look their way is if they brought in someone like a Nerlens Noel and said, hey, this is your gig now. Go play 25 minutes at center. Yeah, well, hell yeah, I'll be going to draft him, of course. The spot I'm looking at on the Mavericks, besides Luka, who's going to be overdrafted, and Porzingis, who's probably going to be a little bit underdrafted, perhaps, after an ugly playoffs and an injury-plagued season, is the wing, the wing position. Would I dare draft Dorian Finney-Smith? No. I, you know, in, in Roto, there's no upside to it. In head-to-head, we didn't really see enough uh, durability, interestingly enough, out of Finney Smith, he played 60 out of the 72 games this year. If he played in all 72, he would have very easily been inside the top 100, but he didn't. Uh, playing 60 out of 72 made him more or less right around the league average in that department, and his numbers were pretty damn boring. Even on the head-to-head side, I can't make that strong of a case for him, despite the fact that like he's plodding along. If he played all in 72 games, I could make a little head-to-head case to say, hey, well, you, at least you got, like, you got this low turnover guy who's just going to give you a little bit of everything, but he didn't. And then Roto, you're want your, you want to spend your draft picks on upside guys. You want, to, you want to be spending draft night counting how many guys in your team might give you top 75 or better upside, and Finney Smith just doesn't have that in the arsenal. 
The one other guy on the Mavericks we've actually seen get into that range for more than a, a cup of coffee is Josh Richardson, who I think at this point just isn't the guy he was at the beginning of his career in Miami when we saw this guard that was fly-swatting shots left and right. Remember that wildness? Remember 2016 when Jay Rich averaged over a steal just under a block in 30 minutes a game? We thought, oh, yeah, he's going to step into a bigger role. It's going to be defense up the you-know-what. And even the following year, he had 1.5 steals and .9 blocks. And then for some reason, the year after that, when he had this big offensive usage spike, the defensive stats went into the toilet, and they've never come back. They've been gone. 2018, 2019, 2020, all three of these years, the defensive stats have just been down. After two seasons where we saw 1.9 and then 2.4 combined defensive stats, it dropped to 1.6. He was uh, moved to Philadelphia. That was 1.6. And then this last year was 1.4. So it's going the wrong way. It's going the wrong damn way. His number of shots per game is going the wrong damn way. Just 10.5 shots per game this year, which is the lowest for him since 2016. And it's really hard to have fantasy value when you're shooting 43% from the field, only taking 10.5 shots, and not getting the defensive stats anymore. He does have a path to fantasy value if Tim Hardaway Jr. does not return to Dallas and no one else comes in to fill those minutes, which feels kind of far-fetched. If they let Hardaway walk, which it's a weird phrasing because he's a free agent, he can go anywhere he wants, but if Tim Hardaway leaves, his 13 shots get redistributed among the remaining Mavericks, and Jay Rich is one of the first guys in line to grab probably three of those because he was at 10 and a half, and he basically just slots into Tim Hardaway's role if he departs. Jalen Brunson would probably get a couple. And then you'd see a few, like, one, like how many more shots can Luka Doncic actually take in a ballgame? He might go from 20 and a half to 21. Porzingis might go from 16 to 17. Little things like that. But to me, the guy that steps right into some of that usage is Jay Rich. What does Josh Richardson look like if he's taking 13 shots instead of 10 and a half? It's very different. In Miami, he was taking 14. In Philly, he was closer to 12. Put him somewhere in the middle of that. And you're talking about a guy who probably averages about 15 points a game. Who probably gets you around two three-pointers a game. He's a very good foul shooter, so get him to the line in the twos instead of the high ones, and that's a fantasy boost. Assists, rebounds probably don't change very much. Steals, blocks, let's assume that they stay on this downward trajectory and just put them where they're at already. One steal, half a block. Is 15 points, two threes, three and a half boards, two and a half assists, a steal and half a block. Is that fantasy worthy? The answer is yes and barely. (laughs) The answer is yes and barely because you can find that guy hovering right around the edge of the top 100 with some mild tweaks, with some very mild tweaks in Derek White. Derek White was number 94 on a per-game basis this year on 15 points, 
2.3 three-pointers, three boards, three and a half assists, 0.7 steals, one block, lower field goal percent than uh, Jay Rich had. But of course, he had the higher blocks, slightly lower steals, blah, blah, blah. That's pretty damn close in terms of a comparison made. You can't find uh, much tighter than that in that range. If you fluctuate out of it, you get into other stuff. Um, you know, you get it like Jordan Clarkson, but his usage was higher and his the low field goal percent actually becomes a bigger deal for him. Uh, the blocks are lower. You're basically creating a J-Rich that hovers near the edge of the top 100, somewhere between 90 and 115, which is probably worth a look in fantasy. Not like it's something ultra special. And he also hasn't shown himself to be all that particularly durable lately. Uh, 59 games this year, 55 last season in Philadelphia, 73 the year before that in Miami, which was one of the better recent markers for him. So if you're looking at him in head-to-head, you're probably barking up the wrong tree. If you're looking at him in roto, there probably isn't enough upside to really warrant that dive. But at like pick 120 to 130, yeah, might as well. And all of this is contingent, once again, on Tim Hardaway being gone. Let's say Tim Hardaway stays. Well, then you're not looking at Josh Richardson anymore. Then you're looking at Tim Hardaway, who was 150 on the season. But, as we've talked about before, when they went to him in their main unit down the stretch, and it was really just like the last couple of weeks. It was not a particularly long experiment. But Tim Hardaway, uh, his minutes went up to about 29 in their last three and a half, four weeks, and he was right at the edge of the top 100. If he comes back, that's probably where he ends up again. He took 14 shots a game over that stretch and pretty much iced Josh Richardson out of fantasy value completely. Although Jay Rich did have more steals down the stretch, for whatever that's worth. I'd say a lot hinges on what Dallas does this offseason, and it really does. There are other players that could come in. They do have some cap space they could work with. They need to leave some of that open for the following year to assign Doncic to his extension so they don't go too deep into the the luxury tax. Uh, But none of those other guys have any sort of meaningful upside. So keep an eye on Kristaps Porzingis. That's probably the lesson to take away from this episode of Fantasy NBA Today. And with that, we can go ahead and wrap things up. We will continue our Texas three-step, actually, uh, tomorrow on the podcast. We'll keep working our way through the Lone Star State. We've still got the Rockets and the Spurs to go. Uh, among others. I actually forgot for a minute that we we have a non-Texas team we, we still need to cover in the Southwest Division. We got this. Is, let's play the game of... Can you figure out who, who, what is the other team in that division uh, while Dan's brain was circling the drain there for a second? And, of course, of course you guys know who it is. Uh, we'll do them last. That'll be the Pelicans on Monday, probably, of next week. So tomorrow, Thursday show, it'll either be the Spurs or the Rockets, then whichever one we didn't do tomorrow, we'll do on Friday, Pels on Monday, and then we will launch into the Eastern Conference thereafter. I am Dan Vespers for Fantasy NBA Today, this being once again a hoop ball presentation. Have a great evening. Enjoy the finals game. Back at you tomorrow. So long. This has been a hoop ball presentation.